I've been waiting to tell the story that I'm going to open up with. Um, some of you have heard this already, but I always enjoy sharing it, so I'm going to share it again. Um, so, a few years ago, as in like closer to 10 years ago, because how I come out in this story, I want you to know this happened a long time ago. Um, several, yeah, several years ago, we, we had just recently gotten married, and uh, we were up in Gettysburg uh, visiting Justine's family, and it was wintertime. I had a friend of mine uh, named Katori who uh, joined me uh, to see Justine's family, came from Chicago, and while we were there, I was reminded of a picture I had seen of Justine, and it was of her holding up a pheasant that she had, that she had hunted down. She had gotten the pheasant. And I remember thinking, I've never been hunting before. I would love to, to if my wife can do this, surely I can do this, right? That was, that was a thought, okay? So I was telling my brother-in-law, who for the purpose of this story uh, will remain nameless, if you line up Justine's brothers, it's the one with the nasty mullet, so you can figure out who it is real quickly. But this brother-in-law said to us, well, we can get you, we can make that happen. We can get you that picture that you want. And so what we ended up doing was myself, uh, him, and, and my friend Katori, we went over to the convenience store, and well, we went to go get a hunting license. And... As you know, if you've been hunting, that if you're an outer stater and you need a hunting license, it's going to be exponentially more expensive than if you're in, in town or if you're, if you're from within the state. And so there was a moment where we could have turned back. And that was the moment where we looked at how much it was going to cost to get that license. And my brother-in-law looks at me and he goes, goes, goes like that. And he goes, just, just come on. And so we chose to be we chose to follow him, and we chose to be blissfully unaware. And so we got in the truck, and uh, my brother-in-law had his shotgun. My, my uh, friend was in shotgun, and he had his shotgun. And I, and I put on, uh, I got in the back of the truck, back of the pickup, and I put a black ski mask over my head. That will be important for what happens later in the story. So I have, have that over my head, and I'm sitting in the back, and we went on our way. Well, we went for about three or four hours, and y'all, we couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. We tried so hard and got nothing for it. And so we get to the end of our time. He goes, you know what? I know one more place we can go, um, but it requires we go on this piece of land. I know that there's definitely going to be pheasants there. And so we went. And so we pulled off the side of the road, went in, shot, saw pheasant shot, again, got nothing. And then we made our way home. Well, the next day, uh, a certain disgruntled man uh, posted a picture on Facebook uh, from cameras that he has on his property. And the picture that was posted was of the driver's side of my brother-in-law's blue pickup. And you could see him like this from the side, just like this. And he's a big guy, so you couldn't see my friend. Who was, so my friend gets out of this, how the story goes. He gets out of it because you can't see him. But who's the dummy with the ski mask on sitting like, like this in the back of the truck, right? <laughs> Yours truly. And so anyways, Justine looks at us after we've gotten that picture's plaster on Facebook and he goes, this Langer boy has done it again, blah, 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 blah. And Justine looks at us and goes, well, at least thank goodness you got a hunting license. And we, and we went like, like that. And then she goes, like that. And... <laughs> 
The next day, I, we, we hopped on a plane, went back home to Fort Worth where we were living at the time, and I thought nothing of it. You won't be able to find out it was me, and we'll just leave it there. Well, the game warden uh, got in touch with my brother-in-law, and my brother-in-law called me up a few days later, and he said, um, with quivering voice, Aaron, if you don't give yourself up, um, they're, they're going to take me to jail. And they weren't, I don't know how serious that was, but he was, the point had gotten across. So um, I fessed up, uh, I ended up with a $500 fine, and I haven't been hunting since. And I've killed more pheasants with my vehicle than I ever did that day, okay? Now, there's several morals to this story. Uh, one could be watch out who you follow. Uh, another one could be uh, don't play, playing dumb can still get you in trouble, right? Um, or be careful who you associate with. Um, I later learned that my brother-in-law had developed a reputation for doing this with another guy going on this particular piece of property, and so we were dead men walking when we got in that truck with him because the crosshairs were already on him. And so we were guilty by association. There's just no chance for us. Uh, I should say, I think of Proverbs 13:20 here that says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Harmed my pocketbook that day. And the truth is, you can pay a pot price, you see, right, with who you associate with. You think about your, your friends or family members, and you've seen them maybe get married to other people, and you've seen how their character changes, and, and you take some of that character of the person you marry, and over a course of, uh, of years, you can see how, how that person is impacted by the other. Or the kind of friends that you associate with, how their reputation becomes your reputation, right? And so I think a good question for us to ask is to ask the question, who do we associate with in this short life that we live? I think the passage this morning that we're going to be confronted by is going to confront us this way. It's going to say, will we choose to be guilty in the eyes of the world because we associate with Jesus or are we going to be guilty in the eyes of Christ because we have just chosen to associate with the world? Whose connection do we want and which consequences are we willing to pay? Go ahead and turn your Bible, if you would, as we answer that question to John 15, 18. And as you turn there, I want you to notice as we get into the passage today, you're going to see a lot of those different kinds of connections. The connection between us Christians and Jesus, the connection we used to have with the world, the connection between the world and its father, Satan, the connection between Jesus and his father, and then, of course, the connection between the spirit and us. Look at those dynamics, those uh, associations as we get into the passage this morning. There are consequences for each one of them, and so we have to pay attention so that we would get the Christian life right. John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Verse 21. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus has been preparing the disciples for his departure. And if you could summarize everything that he has said from the end of John 13, where the beginning of the discourse starts, and to the the, the farewell uh, discourse proper, which begins in chapter 14 to the present, you'll see much of what Jesus has said has been talking about the disciples and their relationship with him, and therefore the Father, and also their relationship with one another. This is the passage that we're looking at this morning where Jesus turns everything and then he shifts to talking about how we as Christians are to relate to the world. And that's that's where the shift is this morning. And so Jesus begins and he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And so that's the first thing that we need to get into our minds this morning is to understand that the world's hatred comes from the fact that we are really unified to Christ. Yes, the question, okay, who is the world in this scenario? Well, immediately in the passage, uh, the world would be the Jewish, religious, the Jewish religious leaders and those who were persecuting Jesus or are about to in just a few moments as they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek and it leads to his betrayal and all the way to the cross. You, you could say that. But the word world here in the Gospel of John can have at least two different meanings. And you should pay attention when you read this Gospel. On the one hand, that can refer to uh, just the world in general. It can refer to humanity at large. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, right? The world is kind of everybody in general. But the world can also refer to those who are hostile to God. And that's what I think we have in front of us. There's a hostility in the world that exists. And Jesus wants us to watch out for that. And he's telling us this. The issue is not ultimately that the world hates you. The issue is that the world hates Christ. It hates me. I love the way D.A. Carson puts this. Because he says, the world hates you also because you were at one point chosen uh, by Christ. You used to be on the losing team, and now you're on the team of Christ. Carson says this, former rebels who have, by grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to the rightful monarch, are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in the rebellion. I think that's a great way to put it. Don't be surprised, friend, that the world hates you. In fact, this comes to mind in this moment. You should watch out for those who claim to be Christian leaders or Christian influencers of any kind, but yet they care about what the world thinks, and so they're trying to win the approval of man. You should watch out for those kinds of people, because Jesus says, if you follow me, you cannot get the approval of man. How aggravating that must be to the enemy. And so Jesus says to us this morning, don't be surprised. These people will see you as odd. These people may even look at you and they're going to say, you think you know better. I knew what you used to be like, brother. I knew what you used to be like five minutes ago. 
And so maybe some of us in here this morning, you've had that moment clearly where you could distinguish before you were a Christian and then after when Christ got a hold of you. Think of those people before. They may look at you and go, you think you're better than me. I know what you're all about, man. And you could say, well, that may be true, but I've tasted the bread of life. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I've had living water, and I just cannot go back to what I used to have. And so you don't hate these people. They may hate you, but you don't hate them. You have pity because you know the problem is not you. The problem is with the one who chose you. And that one says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think it's strange to hear words like this for us as Western American Christians. This idea of persecution. Because it's something that is not normal in a part of our daily lives, even though it has been something that's been normal since 2,000 years ago, ever since the beginning. Like, consider Paul for just a moment. Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. That's kind of a, you could run right through that if you're reading through 2 Corinthians. Paul, who was called Saul, used to persecute Christians, and now he's persecuted as one. And he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, one. Have you ever taken time to really process what he's saying there? What he's saying is that he was held down by people who hated him, and then he was whipped until he was in a pool of his own blood, and then in the months afterwards where his back healed, he would have incredible scars from what had just happened. And then it would happen again. And so at another point, the religious leaders would, or, or, or whatever authorities would pin him down, and they would get him again, and those scars that he had developed would be ripped up again, and he would have brand new wounds. Heal, rip, heal, rip. This happens five times. And it's not because Paul has the name Paul, but it's because he has the name Christ over him. And that's what he does. I don't want you to think, though, that that's just some sort of ancient phenomenon. Open Doors USA last year estimated that in 2021, 360 million, not thousand, million Christians, they lived in countries where persecution is significant. It says roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered. So this is 2021. Almost 6,000 Christians murdered. More than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned. Another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. In addition, more than 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed. Put that into perspective, friends, especially deacons, as we talk about our own building and we have kind of an excitement to think, you know, what could God do? What, what kind of things need to be updated? I sit in our deacon meetings and I go, who are we that we get to have the privilege to think the way that we do while well, 5,000 religious facilities were just taken out in one year? That's 2021. You'd think it was much different in 2022. We, we have been so blessed. You may argue they've been blessed more because through their suffering they have encountered Christ in a way that we have not. It's all because of the name of Christ. And so we're confronted with this reality that for Christians, suffering is normal. That should challenge us. 
And it's to remind us again of the words of Nick Ripkin from The Insanity of God that I've read to you at one point, which says this, perhaps the question should not be, why are others persecuted? Perhaps the better question should be, why are we not? Why are we not, right? I think we have much to learn from our Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world. And in fact, I wonder if maybe the reason we don't experience the persecution that they do is because the devil does not need to bring that upon us because he has so tricked us into the, our own stupor of apathy to think that there's no, no such thing as spiritual warfare. No such thing. Those of you who are familiar with C.S. Lewis knows that, know that he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in that book, in the preface, he talks about how we should think about spiritual warfare. And he talks about two different ways we can go to the extremes and get it wrong. Uh, Lewis says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, probably a lot of us, or a magician with the same delight. Complete denial on the one hand and infatuation on the other will take you off course in two different directions when it comes to thinking about spiritual warfare. In this book, um, it's a satire, a satirical, satirical story in which the, uh, an older uh, demon named um, Screwtape writes letters to his nephew, Wormwood, and he tells them, here's what you ought to do um, as you encounter the patient. And he gives them advice on how he could basically bring down the patient, a British man, um, in this story. And so Screwtape says this, remember, He's speaking from the perspective of the enemy. Screwtape says, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Friends, maybe our enemy does not need to bring persecution through the hatred of the world because he's gotten us to think that the enemy isn't a big deal, that he's just something in red tights with a, with a pitchfork, a little bit of this, right? And yet scripture, let us be reminded, says, have sound judgment, be alert, 1 Peter 5, 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and so let me speak on two different levels here. Uh, level one, let me speak to us corporately as the church. Many of you have expressed to me your just excitement and just enthusiasm for the season that we're in. As we've talked about uh, discipleship and seeing what the Lord could do here. I've said this before, but I want to remind you again that for me, uh, my passion is not so much the circulation of the saints, of one people coming to another people from one church to another. My passion is to see those who do not know Jesus Christ, the people like when I, when I went to just to, to go to the grocery store the other day, and I see young people that are my age, and I'm going, are you in church? I, I, I look at them and I, and I go, those are the kind of people that I want to reach. 
the ones who have no religious affiliation. I want to see lost people come to know Christ. My desire is to see Jesus pluck those people out, take them from the gates of hell, and lead them to the gates of heaven. That, that's what I'm interested in, is seeing salvation come to God's house. That's it. That's, that's the main reason I'm here. Evangelism and discipleship to the glory of God. That's it. And so, look, we have plans as we look at these types of things and we go, Lord, what do we need to do in our own structures here? You remember that thing called the transition report from 2021 that Randall uh, led all of you through, the assessment and all of that. And we're working towards making our church operations better here for discipleship. I have more to say about that in the coming days. But I can't help but wonder if the real pathway to which God will bring discipleship and growth may not be through our own strategies, but it may be because we don't go down a road called suffering and opposition. I wonder if that may be the actual way God chooses to do that in our midst. Why would we think it would be any different for us when Jesus already went down that road for us? Why would we think differently? Perhaps God might allow it that we would experience the opposition of the world so that we would see what he does and he would make us more faithful. And so with that, I'd ask you to pray for our elders in a new way. Pray in such a way where you're mindful of spiritual warfare. Pray for our deacons. Pray for our ministry leaders. Pray for us that we would have humility. Pray for us that we would have fidelity to God's word. Pray for us that we wouldn't lose sight of the main mission for why we are here. Pray for us. Pray that God would give us courage. That's corporate. Put it on the individual level. Look at yourself. And I'd ask you to think, look at the stuff that you've been dealing with, the challenges in your life over the last week, days, last month, season, whatever. And ask yourself, maybe there is a spiritual component to what you're going through. Uh, certainly, there's, we have to think of our lives holistically. We're not just... We're not just immaterial. We're not just soul. We're also body. We ought to consider the need for sleep. We also need to consider the need for our own mental state. But don't miss the spiritual component. More recently than I would care to admit, Justine and I, we had a great Monday where we, God used us and, and, we were, and we were able to look at that Monday and go, wow, God really used us. This is a great moment. And then the two of us, as we went throughout our week in our, own, in our own different ways, we experienced challenges, and we got to the end of the week, and we went, maybe there's something else that's going on here. Maybe the challenges that, that I'm facing in the, thing, in the world that I live in, and you face here, honey, maybe we need to start thinking of this more deeply as not just merely strategy, but maybe we need to see this more as spiritual warfare. I'd ask you to consider that in your own life. Would you pray, Lord, would you pull back the curtain on what is going on with me right now? And would you show me the things that I cannot see on my own? Let me see things from your perspective and then let me go, there's a real enemy here. And that enemy hates me. But greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. If we stand on the promises, let us use those promises and wield them against our spiritual enemy. Let us pray the Psalms. Let's pray Psalm 7 that says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. For David, when, when we read the Psalms, many times he's talking about a literal enemy like the Philistines. Lord, they're coming to get me. Help me. But you read the Psalms. You read them and understand you have a spiritual enemy 
the devil and his demons, and you pray against them. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. You take those words from the Psalms, you pray them out, you kick the devil in the teeth, and you tell him to go back to hell where he belongs. Because you have the Lord of heaven's armies that is on your side. And if he's already overcome the grave, he can overcome your situation and what you're going through as well, friend. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. You with me? Okay. Jesus goes deeper on the enemy here. Verse 22 I think, 22, yes, 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done, them, done the works that among them that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Oh, the irony. It's in their own book, and they're acting evil, in an evil way, fulfilling what's in their own book. And so now let's go through these next points more quickly here, shorter here. Second, see that the world is guilty for two primary things. It has rejected the word of Christ, and it has rejected the deeds of Christ. You see that in the two if statements, in verse 22 and 24. These people heard the words of Jesus. They saw him act and perform miracles and teach, and they still said no. And it ought to concern you because what's happening here is not saying that those who haven't heard Christ or those who have not seen him act are innocent. It's saying that when these people who have had the most clear representation of God's revelation of Christ right in front of them, and they still say no, oh, they are so guilty. They're so guilty. The question, who do you say that I am, is the most important question every single one of us is going to have to answer. Who do you say that he is? And if you say anything less than he is the divine one sent from his father, you are rejecting him. And this serves, like hear me friends, this serves as a dire warning for those of us who know people who started with us and are no longer of us, as First John talks about. Those people who went out and their life demonstrated. Maybe you think of the parable of the sower and the seed. They were, they were the first three types of seed that did not end up producing a harvest at the end. Jesus says, these people, the judgment is very clear for them. You ought to pray in a new way for those people like that who you know. I was once one of them. Consider further, John 8, 6, about the father of these people who hate Jesus. If God were your father, Jesus says elsewhere, your father, God were your father, you would love me. For I came from the world and I am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are, the, you, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do as your Father desires. And here now we can put it all together. Friend, every single one of us is going to have to ask the question, will we be guilty in the eyes of the world because we have chosen Jesus and therefore his Father? 
Or will we be guilty in the eyes of Christ because we have rejected the heavenly father and we have chosen an earthly father called Satan, the devil? Which one are you? Which one are you? We are either going to be guilty by our association with Christ and will live, or we're either going to be guilty by our association with the world and the devil and we die. There's, there's no other choice. And so I would ask you to count the friend, count the cost, friend, if you have never made that decision. Count the cost before you say yes to follow Jesus. It will cost you something. You may lose the world, but your gain will be that you have your own soul in him. Yeah. Jesus says to live this way, but he does not leave us alone. He tells us once again for a third time in the farewell discourse that there is another, the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26 says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The third thing here that I think Jesus is calling us to see this morning is to see that how do we respond to the world's hatred? The answer is that we, we live through the witness of the Holy Spirit in us, our witness through the Holy Spirit. And this passage is so key. It's key for this reason because it is here if you wanted any other place. You could find it right here where you know that Jesus, not only Jesus is divine, divine, but the Spirit is as well. Friends, we have spent so much talking about the Father and his relationship to the Son, but now we're talking about the Father and his relationship to the Spirit. Here's how this works. From the Father to the Son, the Father is a Father because he has a Son in eternity who's revealed to you in time. And that Son eternally proceeds from the Father by way of being only begotten, so you just thought John 3.16 was just a fun little verse that you memorized as a kid, but it has the deepest theology in it. He is the, and the King James nails it here, the only begotten one. He proceeds by way of his sonship. The Father, from the Father, you have the Son. Theologians have called that eternal generation. But yet on the other hand, you have the Spirit who is the very breath of the Father, that when he speaks out the word, the Son, the breath is the Spirit. And theologians have called that, that he eternally spirates. And so we have eternal generation, spiration, and you see that from the Father through the Son, we have the one who is breathed out called the Holy Spirit. And if that sounds all kind of heady to you, I love illustrations. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and he shows up to his disciples, and what does he do? John 20, 21 says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so the one who proceeds from the Father through the Son has been breathed out into your life so that you would not be alone, but you would have God's very presence and power to encounter the sorrow that you may go through, to encounter the challenges the world may bring your way, the insidious work of the devil. You are not yet left alone. And so I want to keep drilling this into us every single week. 
See the power of the Spirit that is at your disposal and say, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be reminded of that power that you have in him. Lastly, Jesus closes and he says this. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. It's exactly what Saul, who was also called Paul, did. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. When their hour comes. See, here's the point. Jesus is getting them ready for what's going to happen. And he says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Don't be surprised. You can imagine as a disciple, you're just processing the fact that Jesus says he's going to leave, and now he's going to tell you it's not going to be good for you in certain ways. It may cost you your life. It's the case for 10 out of the 11 disciples. Absolutely. But you see in the book of Acts, as the Spirit comes, every single time the enemy comes, the Spirit overcomes and the gospel still goes forward. And even so, though there are people, there are people who think they are doing evil in the name of God. I'd ask you to think about this in the, with the people that you may deal with right now in your life. Don't see them as being two-dimensional. See them as being full persons. They have reasons for what they may be doing against you. It may be wrong, but they, it's possible to be so deceived that you're thinking that they may think that they're doing the very will of God. Thomas Cranmer, if you go to Broad Street, where Oxford, Oxford University is, whenever you get a chance to go, on Broad Street, there, there's a series of bricks like this, big square, and that's the place where he was burned at the stake for his faith. You know what was happening as he was being burned alive for his faith? There was a sermon being preached against him. You can get it so wrong, you can bring destruction, and Jesus will say to you, why are you persecuting me when you do that to God's people? But Jesus is here to equip us, and he's here to show us that we are victorious in him. You ask the question, how do I know that we are victorious? And the answer is, that at the very hour the world had to persecute Christ, where it thought it would be victorious over him. That was his finest hour for us. And here comes the grace. It was he who chose to be guilty by association to you. And because he has come to you and he has taken on your guilt so that we would be freed through his stripes, we can have the healing that we need to have our relationship with the Father reconciled so that we could be no longer in the world, no longer of the world, but in it to be lights in the midst of darkness. So be encouraged this morning. The devil has no claim on you because it has no claim on the son who has resurrected from the dead. Your reputation, maybe your life may be taken, but there's nothing the devil really can do except nip at your heels. You are the Father's child who has been chosen by him. And so let us heed these warnings in God's word that we have a real enemy. But then let us also remember we have a more powerful Lord that we serve. And if that is the case,
that he is in us, then we can say, never mind what the world may bring. I trust the promises of God, and I will be his witness anyways. Greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.